You can turn over to Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two. A couple of you have asked me, why are we spending so much time on these false teachers? <laughs> uh, well, the simple reason is simply because we teach through the Bible, and in Second Peter chapter two, that's what he deals with. So we have to cover it. Um, and today is, uh, we'll probably get through half of what we want to today just because we have communion. But uh, hopefully finish this up next week. But today I want to talk to you about the character and the doom of false teachers. We've uh, seen a lot of the, uh, about these false teachers in the first ten verses. And uh, we've seen that he gives a couple examples from the Old Testament of why they will be judged. And uh, he also uh, begins to kind of sketch out for us in the first three verses a little bit about these false teachers. And then it's almost like he takes a breath and gives us a bunch of illustrations. And then he comes right back to it. Peter does in the 10th verse, at the the conclusion of the 10th verse. And that's what we're going to pick up today. So let let me read our, our text for us today, Second Peter chapter 2, from 10 to 22. It says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do, do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who barely escape from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never have have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
This is probably one of the fiercest attacks in Scripture against false teachers. It's like, I, I picture Peter like just wanting to wring these guys' necks. You can sense some of the, the righteous anger coming out as he pens these words through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And probably the book of Jude and maybe Matthew 22, the Lord with his own words, comes close to what Peter is trying to do here in pointing out some of these characteristics of these false teachers. And you might ask, why is this such a big deal for him? Why, why is he so fixated on this? I mean, the book's only, you know, three chapters here, and he's, he's, chapter two is gone. He's talking about these false teachers, and he's not even really talking about what they're teaching. If you notice, he doesn't really bring up matters of theology here. And, and I just want to say that, you know, just so you understand, when we talk about false teachers, false teachers, those who are, are teaching error, okay, we're not talking about people who disagree with our church. Do you understand that? That's, that's not a false teacher. That's just somebody who disagrees maybe in an area of doctrine, all right, And so we have to be careful here that we don't become pious with an attitude like we have the corner of the truth and nobody else does. That's not what we're saying. The people that Peter's pointing out here are truly false teachers and false prophets. They would be the, the Benny Hins of our day. The people who are in it for just ill-gotten gain. Not somebody who may disagree on your eschatology or somebody who maybe even disagrees on some other issues of, of Scripture. We're not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin here. Okay, we're talking about people who have taken the Word of God, the truth of God, and have maligned it and misused it to gain for themselves the money from the pockets of those they teach. It's very clear. So just so we're clear on that, that we're not, we're not pointing out people within the church. These were false teachers who crept into the church, but they surely were not part of the church. Peter is so frustrated here. He's so angry at these, these individuals, and he goes on for 22 verses about them. And I think... Just a way of introductory, I think the reason he does that is he understands the role of a shepherd. He understands the role of a pastor. And the role of a shepherd or the role of the pastor is, as Jesus taught Peter, to protect their sheep, to feed their sheep. That's what, when Peter was reinstated, that's what Jesus told him. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. John Owen, one of the Puritans, wrote this. I'll just read this quote for you. He said, It's incumbent on the pastors, on pastors to preserve the truth or doctrine of the gospel received and professed in the church and to defend it against all option. This is one principal end of the ministry. And the sinful neglect of this duty is that which was the, mo- the cause of the most of the pernicious heresies and errors that have infested and ruined the church. Those whose duty it was to preserve the, go- the doctrine of the gospel entire and the public profession of it, many 
of them spoke perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Bishops, presbyters, public teachers have been the ringleaders in heresies. Wherefore, this duty, especially at this time, when the fundamental truths of the gospel are on all sides impugned from all sorts of adversaries, is a special manner to be attended unto. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us this, All Scripture is breathed out of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the role of someone who's teaching the Word of God, whether they're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, it doesn't matter. And we should all be, in some way, teaching the Word of God to others, whether it's a disciple group or whether it's a Bible study. Maybe it's our children. We need to be involved in teaching the Word of God because we understand that it's the Word of God that has the ability and the power to transform lives. It's not our own words. It's the Word of God. And so when we come to our study today and we look at some of these characteristics of these false teachers... The first thing I want to look at here in verse 10 at the end, we looked at the first part of it last week, Second Peter 2, verse 10, is their attitude. He says, first of all, they're bold. They're bold. Literally, they're, they're, they, they dare God. They, they, they almost, you know, they're, they're daring to defy God and they exalt themselves. And they don't care what the consequences are. They don't care if they get caught. They don't care if they get found out. They're so bold. They're so over the top. It's one of their attitudes. He also says they're willful there in verse 10. He says bold and willful. In other words, they're doing their own thing. They're not concerned about what maybe God has instructed them to do as a church or as a minister or as a Christian. They're off on their own little path doing what they want to do. And it has the idea, that word has the idea of of they're doing it for the simple reason of pleasing themselves. It's a very kind of a conceited look at things. We've all met people, we work with people that don't care about anybody else on the team but themselves. You don't care for that person very long. They kind of frustrate the team effort because they're always off trying to do what they want to do the way they want to do it. That word willful, that's what that means. And he says here that they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this is a very kind of interesting portion of Scripture. Um, and I think what, what this is saying, you know, the word glorious ones there basically means angelic beings, some form of angelic beings. They could even be fallen beings because they're so much more powerful and so much more along the, the, the creation than we are. Their majesty, their majestic is the idea. And I think it's important that we understand that because it says that these false teachers don't even tremble when they revel against these, these majesties, these glorious ones. They, they blaspheme, that's the word, to slander, to speak lightly of, or profane a sacred thing. 
you look over just a couple pages there to your right in Jude, Jude, if you look at verse 8, It says, yet in like manner, also Jude is also a book that speaks a lot about false teachers. Don't worry, we're not going to do Jude after Second Peter, so just relax. <laughs> we'll get it sometime, but not, not right after. Uh, verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, speaking of false teachers, defile the flesh, reject authority, and what do they do? They blaspheme the glorious ones. And then look at what it says in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But in verse 10 it says, These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And then they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. And that's what Peter is saying as well. He's saying these teachers don't have any idea what they're even talking about sometimes, but they they don't really even care. And they're willing even to blaspheme demons or angels, thinking that they know better. Even though they were mere mortals. Most of us, if we were in the presence of a demon or we were in the presence of an angel, we would understand that that being is a lot more powerful than we are. Yes, we have authority over the demonic host in Christ's name. I understand that. But they're still more powerful. Clearly. Look at, look at our society. The havoc they're wreaking on our society. Psalm 8.5 says that we were, as mortals, by nature, created lower than the angels. So whether you're talking about demons or angels, they're definitely higher beings than we are. But remember, they cannot be redeemed. They can't be saved. Angels cannot be saved. There's no redemption for them. So he indicates here that these, these teachers were even willing to blaspheme um, angelic beings. That's how bold, that's how um, prideful, you might say, they were. And it says in verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? Angels don't even blaspheme one another. And you think as mere teachers, you're, you're going to get away with this? That's their, that's their attitude. And if you've ever heard a false teacher be confronted, one of the first things they say to you, do not touch the Lord's anointed. Do not accuse the Lord's anointed. You have no right to question what I'm teaching. Because I'm teaching revelation as I'm receiving it directly from God. They put themselves on that kind of pedestal. I mean, how do you argue with that? If that's what they believe, that's what they believe. It's wrong, but that's where their thinking is. That's where their attitude is. They painted a little box around them called the anointed, and, oh, you can't touch, can't touch them. A lot of people in the modern-day charismatic movement are just having fits with this seminar that, that uh, Grace Community Church is hosting called Strange Fire. They're just going bonkers over it. Why? 
because they're going to be pointing out the error of their way. They're afraid that somehow maybe they would lose some support. It's sad, but it's true. And it says there, in, it says that they blaspheme, but it also, it says especially those, or in verse, uh, sorry, uh, verse 11 there, whereas angels, though greater, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, then it says this, like irrational animals. Now, I've got to be careful here because I know some of you just love animals. I, you know, I just want to be careful. You know, you got your little cat at home, which I'm highly allergic to, or you got your little dog, which sometimes I'm allergic to, you know, or gerbil or fish or whatever. Okay, you have to understand in the culture of what Peter's writing here, they didn't have that. There was one thing an animal was used for. You ate it. All right, or you used it to, to help you dig a trench in a field. You didn't have pets. That was foreign to them. So when he talks to, about these false teachers as animals, he's just saying they're, they're just irrational, just like animals are. I mean, you might say, well, you don't know my dog or my cat. Well, you know, they're not rational like a human being. You may think they are, and that may be caused for us to pause and think, if you're irrational, I don't know, but I'm just saying, you know, that's what the Bible says. Love the little dog and little cat and gerbil and all that stuff, but that's what the Bible says. And he compares these false teachers to these irrational animals. He says they're creatures of instinct. In other words, they just do whatever comes naturally. Maybe you've had your kids at the zoo when the animals start to do what comes naturally. How do you, what do you do? You know, it's like, ah, they're animals. They don't know there's 500 people standing there watching them. Um, you know, and that's, that's the, the idea here. It really is. They don't care. They're just going by pure fallen instinct. It says they were born to be caught and destroyed. Wow. That's what he's relating these animals to his false teachers. These false teachers serve no purpose when it comes to the kingdom of God at all. None at all. Absolutely none. And you say, well, you know, some of those guys, you know, they're praising Jesus. They're calling him Lord. They're saying all these good things, you know. And then, yeah, there's some error in there. But see, you have to understand, as we're going to find out, their attitude is one of, of, of pure, just uh, bold, willful defiance before a holy God. They don't care what God says. And they'll repeat verses if that gets them more money. They don't care. If that gets them a bigger following, they'll show you pictures of orphanages and foreign lands and all sorts of things. To tug at your heartstrings. You know, there's a reason why at a Benny Hinn conference, the lady on the organ's always playing the organ. Psychologists tell you there's something to that. You know, there, there, there's some kind of force there, and it ain't, it's not the force of God, trust me, that's behind that whole operation. But they're creatures of instinct, and all they're good for, he says, is to be born. To be caught and destroyed. Blaspheme about matters of which they are ignorant. In other words, they have no knowledge at all. 
And he even says the same thing over in Jude. He, he uses the exact same illustration. So it must have been very clear to them when they said that. It says in verse, the end of verse 12, blasphemy about matters which they're ignorant, they will also be destroyed in their destruction. They will be destroyed. They will be wiped out. When God's final judgment falls, trust me, there will be no salvation for this ilk, for these people. It says in verse 13, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. It's kind of a, not the best translation of that word. It's really best understood as to be damaged or to be harmed or to be injured. Basically, what it's saying is, you know what? They're going to get back what they're giving out. They're destroying people's lives left and right. Well, one day they will be destroyed. And I think that it's important that we understand that fact. That our God is faithful. He doesn't just close his eyes and turn his head the other way. He will hold these men, these women, these false teachers, these false prophets accountable in time. That's their attitude. They're bold. They're willful. They're defiant. They're blasphemous. Now look at their actions there at the end of verse 13. It says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Revel or, or carouse, that word means to eat together, to entertain together. It has the idea of just having a big party. It may have even had the idea, some commentators say, it may have even been tied in somehow to the, the uh, Lord's table. Somehow they were mocking that. I mean, when does a lot of stuff go on in our, our community, bad stuff? What time of the day? At night, Right? If you want to go on a ride along with the police officer, you know, you can ride along in their car. You set that up. I've done that several times. I've never gone during the day. I don't want to go during the day. What, watch this guy, you know, write tickets or something? That's no fun. Let's go at night when there's some action going on, you know. You want to be called out to something that's, boy, it's kind of, wow, this is cool. What's going on, you know? You want some action. That happens at night. As a general rule, sinners tend to engage in wrongdoing and debauchery at night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 7 says, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, but those who get drunk get drunk at night. In, back in the, the pagan Roman society of their time, their debauchery and all this stuff, these parties they would have would go on as long as they had the cover of darkness because they were upstanding citizens during the day. And it would be even be frowned upon to do something out of sorts during the day when everyone would see you. That would cause you to look bad in the community. But if you did it at night, hey, everybody else is doing it too. doesn't matter. But it says that it was a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They didn't even care. They don't care. That's the idea. 
They don't care who sees them or whatever. They feel they're above all that. And then it says, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. That speaks of kind of filthy uh, scabs, you might say, on somebody's skin. Things that are diseased. Malignant sores. It says these false teachers were reveling in their deception. In other words, they enjoy it. They're not feeling bad that they're taking money from all these people and deceiving them. They don't feel bad about it at all. As a matter of fact, they count it as, hey, this is cool. Look, at you can't believe what I came up with, the next little scheme that I came up with. And you watch some of these teachers on TV, and they got all sorts of things they're trying to, you know, sell you. They got sand from the Holy Land, or a cloth that Jesus touched, or, a, you know, a lock of hair from somebody. Or, it's just crazy stuff. And you wonder, who in the world would actually send these people money thinking that somehow when they get this stuff, that it's going to give them some form of blessing. I don't know if you saw in the the paper this last week, the San Jose Mercury News, they had an ad in there about a scam that's going on where um, certain individuals are kind of approaching people that have some mental issues. And they're saying the reason you have these issues is because there's, uh, there's some demonic activity going on. And for a certain amount, if you'll um, give us a certain amount of money, we can take care of this for you spiritually. And so a lot of times in certain, this certain country, the people didn't have the money. So they would take their jewelry or they would take stuff and they'd put it in this bag and they'd give it to these people. And they were instructed to give it to them. And then when after a certain period of time, they would bring the bag back. And when they opened it, what was pushed, put into the, the bag would have doubled. So they would have more than they would even have before. And their problem would be gone. And people were flocking to these people to have this done. Well, when they open the bag, when they get the bag back, there's nothing in it. <laughs> It's a bunch of rocks, and the people ripped them off and took all their jewelry or whatever. And these are poor people we're talking about a lot of times. So it's kind of sad, you know, but there's people out there that are gullible. They're not trained in the truth, and they just think, hey, this is another way to somehow earn a blessing from God. And that's what they're, they're looking for. It's sad. But it says that they deceived these. They're, they're reveling in their deceptions. They, they, don't, they don't care. They're not trying to hide I mean, they crept in to the church kind of stealthily, as we said. But once they're established in Christendom and people buy their books and do all that, man, they become very bold. And they become very um, just willful in their destruction. And it says that reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So it has the idea that they're, they're coming in to kind of um, eat together with the saints. He's talking to believers here. He's saying they want to entice you into their lewdness, into their debauchery. That's their idea. Verse 14 says they have eyes full of adultery. That indicates that, you know what, these spiritual frauds, They don't possess any self-control morally whatsoever. They don't care. And and we see that when, you know, you hear about certain pastors or teachers, you know, they're found out and, wow, you know, 
they were homosexual. No one knew. You know, or they were addicted to crack cocaine. No one ever knew. Or they were this or they were that. Or, boy, you know, um, you look at, at some of the, you know, I remember when, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, the, the, the one guy, he was caught in Indio, swaggered, uh, frequenting a prostitute. And he was arrested by the Indio police. I actually have a copy of his ticket. They ticketed him and let him go, but I actually have a copy of that. And it, it's, it's interesting because they found all this stuff in his car or whatever. And, and I'm not saying God doesn't forgive, and, and please get me, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying here's a man who purported to be something he wasn't. And he was found out. And yet, you know what? Years later, where's he at? He's in the same, you know, doing the same thing. Same thing with, you know, some of these other guys. And it's, it's, it's sad because you, you wonder, boy, their life is so full. It says here their eyes are full of adultery. In other words, they, they just don't have any issue with immorality. I mean, they may say differently, but their lifestyle is something totally different. I mean, some of the most powerful men... I'm not saying these men are Christians, but probably the most powerful men in the Christian entertainment business as far as satellites and putting teachers on TV and all that kind of things. Very immoral person. Very immoral. And yet, people don't have an issue with that. And so it says here that they, they, they don't really care. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They just can't get enough of it. Then it says they entice unsteady souls. They entice unsteady souls. You know, this, this is the attitude that leads to the action here. That word entice means to catch, like they're out fishing. <laughs> they're trolling for some new flesh. That's the idea. And they prey upon those who are spiritually weak. They convince them to believe doctrinal lies. And they drag them into their hideous lifestyle. You might say, well, why do they do all this? What's, their, what's the, the motivation here? It says they have hearts, look at verse 14, the end. They have hearts trained, look at that word, trained in greed. They have hearts trained in greed. What does that mean? That means they use their immorality, they, they use their false teaching as a medium to get what they want as far as monetary gain from people. That word trained is the, the word we get gymnasium from it has the idea of it's an athletic term and it means to exercise or to discipline yourself these guys are so disciplined i talked to um, a pastor a long time ago when uh, one of these false teachers was was on the, the the tv all the time robert tilton and he said i knew a friend who went to school with robert tilton he went to christian school college and in his room, 
Robert Tilton would stand in front of the mirror and practice his whole thing. And he said, when I saw him on TV, he goes, that's exactly what he was doing in the mirror years before that. See, these guys aren't stupid. They'll get up and they'll quote the Bible. They don't even need notes. They don't need nothing. They're trained. They're disciplined. They'll sit there and they'll just captivate an audience. That's what happens. But it says they're trained not to teach them, but they're trained in greed. William Barclay explains it this way. He says, the picture is a terrible one. The word which is used for trained is the word which is used for an athlete exercising and training himself for the games. These people have actually trained and equipped and taught their minds and their hearts to concentrate on nothing but the forbidden desire. They have deliberately fought with conscience until they have destroyed it. They have deliberately wrestled with God until they have thrown God out of their lives. They have deliberately struggled with their finer feelings until they have strangled them. They have deliberately trained themselves to concentrate on forbidden things. Their lives have been a dreadful battle to destroy virtue and to train themselves in the techniques of sin. See, Peter understood what these teachers were about. He understood that they weren't just saying occasional things that were erroneous. See, that's the downfall of the modern-day church, is they look at some of these teachers and they say, well, you know, I listened to them, and it seemed harmless. Nobody knows how to discern truth from error anymore. There are offenses here are not accidental. They're, they're purposeful. And their hearts are turned towards sensual and materialistic gain. That's what they want. And to tell you how disgusted Peter is with them, look at what he calls them. He calls them accursed children. You know, you you stop and you think, as liars and hypocrites, the false teachers basically are at the top of the heap. And those are the ones who God has cursed to hell. They're servants not of God, but they're servants of Satan. They're slaves to sin. And you wonder, well, why why do they do this? Why do they train themselves in this? It's all their attitude, their action. Look at their award. What do they think they're going to gain by this? Look at verse 15. It kind of takes us back to the Old Testament. It says in verse 15... Forsaking the right way. That's such an interesting phrase right there. Forsaking the right way. In other words, they know there's a right way, but they forsook it. They, they turned their back on it. They said, I don't want to go that way. Willfully. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Gone off the path. And then it gives an illustration. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved what what he loved, gain from wrongdoing. But was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
They followed his way. They followed the broad way that leads to destruction. Jude Verse 11 also makes reference to this. It says, They have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. So apparently Balaam was among these false prophets, these false teachers. And you say, well, what's, what, are they, what, are they, what are they gaining from this? When you go back to the story of Balaam and you understand who Balaam was, and we're not going to go through all that. We don't have time, but Numbers 22, 23, and 24, if you want to really get into the the story there, uh, you can do that, read that on your own. He was a prophet. He had been given by God the ability to speak for God. That's what his, his, his role was. He was a prophet. And there was a group of people back then who were disgusted with Israel and they wanted victory over the Israelites because they thought they were just too big, getting too big too fast and they were threatened by them, called the Moabites. And the Moabites went to this prophet Balaam and he must have had some form of a bad reputation of being maybe a prophet for hire or something like that, somehow that he could have been bought because they went to him for that purpose. It's like the, you've probably heard the, the illustration of the, the man trying to hire a date. And he tells the lady, well, you know, take you out and $20 be enough? No, that's not enough. $50? No, that's not enough. And the whole idea was, well, how much? Do you need? She goes, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take any money. And he basically returns to her and says, well, we've already established the fact that you would. I, we just got to barter about the price. She already let down her guard by even entertaining an offer. And see, somehow Balaam had that kind of reputation. Be careful of your reputation. Be, care, be careful of your character. How much would it take to buy you off? How much would it take for somebody to offer you a significant amount of money just to kind of turn your head the other way and let some wrongdoing go at your job? I mean, we're in a tough economy. If now, more than ever, probably a lot of people are tempted. God sees that. Well, they came to Balaam, this prophet, and they thought, you know what? This prophet's one of those guys who will speak whatever we want to the highest bidder. So they went to Balaam and they said, we want you, King Balak of Moab. He went to Balaam and he said, we want to pay you a great deal of money if you will pronounce a curse on Israel. We'll give you a lot of money. And the story goes on and basically Balaam would turn it down. He'd say, oh, I can only speak the word of the Lord. I can only speak the word of the Lord. And then the king would come back, and, well, we'll, we'll up the ante. And they got into this little, you know, tit-for-tat game. And if you read in, in Numbers 22, it sounds like this prophet's being a loyal servant of God. But God knew his heart. And he was just holding out for a, a higher price is what he was doing. He was pushing the ante up. And even though he was saying, oh, I can only speak for God and do what God tells me to speak, even though in the end he never did pronounce a curse on Israel, but rather a blessing 
on the nation Israel because of, of, of God's authority and sovereignty. It's evident by the story as you read through it that he wanted the money. And literally God had to stop this prophet of God in his tracks or he would have went through with it. And Peter says about Balaam looking into the past, right into Balaam's heart, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, that's what I see in these false teachers. They follow Balaam, the son of Beor. He loved wages of unrighteousness. He loved to get paid for doing evil. He preferred money to obeying God. He preferred getting paid rather than faithfulness. You can look back in verse 20, uh, Deuteronomy 23, verses 4 and 5. It says, Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Mesopotamia, to curse you, nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord... Your God loves you. I mean, it's an incredible story. When he's going to meet with them, an angel of the Lord literally blocks their way. And Balaam's little donkey goes off the path trying to avoid this angel of the Lord. And Balaam, he's so hard-hearted, he didn't even... Didn't even see it until God opened his eyes, but he didn't see the angel of the Lord then, so he beat his donkey. I mean, the animal's just doing what, what came naturally. There's an obstacle there. I'm going to avoid it. And then it says that the angel of the Lord came to them while they were traveling on a path that was even narrower, and there was a wall on each side, so they couldn't really turn to the left or the right that much. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to them again, it says the donkey pressed up hard against the wall and hurt Balaam's foot. To avoid the angel of the Lord. And what did Balaam do? He beat the donkey again with the stick. And it's, it's kind of a sad, sad story. Eventually, they come to upon the angel of the Lord again, and he can't go anywhere. And so the donkey just lays down. Just lays down. And obviously, he's trying to avoid this whole this whole angel of the Lord situation, I mean, that, you know, if you saw that, you'd be trembling as well. It says, when the, the donkey saw the, Lord, the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field and Balaam struck it. When the donkey, another occasion, the angel of the Lord pressed himself into the, the wall, so he struck her again. He went a little further. He got to this narrow place and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord and just laid down. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his, strip, with his stick. Finally, the donkey just lays down. He had more spiritual sense than, than Balaam, obviously. And then it says this. It says, And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was riding on a donkey and it started talking to me, that would be a little cause for concern, a little shock. What's weird is that Balaam just responds to the donkey. 
which is even weirder in my mind, because you made a mockery of me, he said. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you. That's what Balaam told the donkey. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do this to you before? And he said, No. You've been a good donkey. You've never done this before. The donkey's trying to get a message across. Don't you think there might be a reason here why uh, I did what I did and finally I just collapsed in this place? I mean, God makes a complete fool out of this prophet. And God stops him in his tracks because he was preparing to prostitute his prophetic gift. You might be sitting there saying, like, do you really believe this donkey talked? I do. I believe that Balaam heard the donkey talk. Remember in John chapter 12, it says there was a noise of thunder that the people heard. It tells us that. But it says Jesus didn't hear thunder. What did he hear? He heard the voice of God. Or even in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Paul heard the Lord speak to him in a way that others didn't hear. doesn't say everybody heard the donkey, just Balaam. God somehow supernaturally allowed that, whatever a donkey makes, to turn into the English, whatever language it spoke, and it went into his ears as what the conversation was. I don't think the servants with Balaam heard it. And there was Balaam, this greedy, false prophet, Willing to do anything for money. See, that's what they want. They want wealth. And they want to get it out of your own pockets and put it in theirs. That's what filthy Luke or uh, 1 Peter 5 talks about. They do it for money. When you stop and think about that, um, you don't have to look very hard to see what their award is. You know, it's everything they got right now. It's their jets they fly around in and their mansions they live in because you know what? In the end, it says they're going to be cast into utter darkness. There's not going to be a, a place for them in heaven. And even when just to give you a little idea here about Balaam, even when the Lord would not let him go and prophesy this curse over Israel, when he figured out he couldn't do that, he ended up basically trying to introduce the people of Israel to some of the prostitutes or whatever so they could intermarry and he caused all sorts of problems. He was just a troublemaker. And you can read all, all about that in, in Numbers and and all that, but I, I think that at one point it says in Numbers that basically Balaam was, was beside himself. He was, his mind, he was mad with greed. He didn't care about anything or anybody but getting richer and richer. That was his award. Well, we also see here their appeal. Why do people follow these people? Look at verse 17 and 19 quickly. It says, these, speaking of the false prophets, are waterless springs. Remember, over there, if there's one thing you need in the middle of a desert, it's what? Water, right? So it's a very high premium. 
And see, this is what false teachers do. They would build a well. You know, they, would, they wouldn't go down into the dirt, but it would be, you know, you'd have the, the, the round thing that looked like a well. They maybe even put a little roof on it. And you'd be out in the middle of the desert, and you'd be looking, ah, water. And you'd get over there, and you'd reach down, and you'd pull up a handful of sand. Because there wasn't any water there at all. That's the idea. It's kind of a bait and switch kind of a situation. Waterless springs. Speaks of false hopes of relief. Think of how many people... uh, Bruce was here uh, last week. Cerebral palsy. He told me, and Beacon and I took him out this past week for lunch, and he was telling us this story of when he went to, I think it was a Benny Hinn uh, healing crusade thing. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole situation he could just see was a big fraud, you know. Um, that's how they operate. They, they give you the impression something's going on when, when literally there's no water in the spring. There's nothing there. And then the next term he uses is even interesting, more interesting. He says not only just waterless springs, but mists driven by a storm. You know, sometimes when you're in a foggy or misty situation, it's kind of like sometimes, you know, it could be there and then all of a sudden, boy, it just lifts and it's gone. It's like a vapor that comes out of the tea tea kettle, you know. You see it and then it's just, just gone. There's nothing there. You can't grab a hold of it. You can't drink it. You can't do anything with it. It's empty. That's the idea. See, it looks good. It's like, oh, that would be great. But when you get there, there's nothing there. The well's empty. Empty promises without any kind of substance at all. That's the idea. And you stop and think about all the people who frequent these kind of places where they teach this kind of stuff. Health, wealth, prosperity kind of stuff. You know, the only people who are getting wealthy there are the, the people usually leading the operation. They're very authoritarian a lot of times in their, the way they operate. They, they kind of, you know, exert their authority over everybody. Nobody can come up against them. You can't touch the Lord's anointed. They minister in a very man-centered way. I put this at the bottom. And they, they treat historic Christian doctrine with contempt. Like they found some kind of a new truth. And when you stop and you think about that, that, that really leads to their apostasy. Verse 20, 22. It says, verse 18, For, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice. They're enticed by sensual pleasures, pet passions of the f- flesh, who, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And then it says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's an interesting word, that word knowledge there, means that they have an accurate knowledge of who Jesus is. But they don't know Jesus. Very key. It's not a saving knowledge. 
It's like the people that come before the Lord in Matthew and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done this? He said, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. He says they are entangled again in these defilements of the world and they've been overcome by them. I don't know about you, but 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, speaks of those who are true in the Christian faith. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? We are overcomers. Those who have true faith in Christ. These false teachers do not have true faith in Christ. They're destined for hell. They can talk about Jesus and the church and all kinds of theology all they want. But this is where they're headed. And it says in verse 21, or at the end there, verse 20, it says, The last state has become worse for them than the first. I've actually seen this play out in people's lives where they've, they've come out of a, maybe a, kind of a horrendous life and they make a profession of faith in Christ and, boy, everybody celebrates it and they get baptized and, boy, they're on the straight and narrow for about maybe you know, six months to a year and then all of a sudden you don't see them and pretty soon you hear about a man, they're in prison or they did something, just totally went off, went back. It's even worse than it was before. And it's like, you know, that's why it's so important that when we present the gospel for people, don't give people false hope. You know, you look throughout Scripture, Jesus didn't give people false hope. He did not do that. He didn't grab a sinner and say, hey, if you just pray this prayer with me, you know what? I guarantee you'll be in heaven. Just, just follow me. Just, just pray this prayer and lead the person. That, you've never seen Jesus do that in Scripture. Nor should we do that today. You're giving people false hope. If Christ transforms their heart, if Christ shows them a need of a Savior, don't you think He's going to give them the ability to cry out? Say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I need saved because of my sin. God can do that. We don't need to lead them like a little baby. Say these words. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I repent of my sin. That's ridiculous. It's not scriptural. It's wrong. And I think we need to change the way we do things because we're giving people false hope. God saves them. Trust me, you'll know it. He transforms us. He draws us out of darkness into light. Gives us new desires. The problem with our churches today is they're filled with people who are probably not really all that sure of their own salvation because they don't see that transformation power in their own lives. They're dealing with the same sin they dealt with before they got saved. They don't have any victory. So they just learn to play church. Put a smile on your face and make sure everything's okay. How was your week, brother? Oh, it was fine. And maybe three days prior, they were on the computer looking at pornography or something. But oh, they couldn't bring that up. No, we we can't be transparent in the church of all places. We have to make ourselves righteous and look like we're something we're not. So sad. It says, for it would have been better 
for them to have never known the way of righteousness and have known it and turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. What? The dog returns to his own vomit. I've seen that. It's not pretty. The sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. It's worse than it was before. We have to realize that false teachers have a horrific impact on not only the world, but the Christian church. And all I want to do is, is, is leave you with a couple of things here. Ask you to be discerning when it comes to biblical teaching. Don't believe what I say. Don't, don't just say because, oh, that guy's a pastor or that person's an elder or that person's a Sunday school teacher. I guess I must just have to believe what they're saying. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you open up your word of God and you make sure that what I'm saying is the truth. And you hold me accountable. Be discerning. Please reject any teacher who advocates a lifestyle or doctrine clearly contrary to the Word of God. Don't open the door even a little bit. Develop your own doctrinal statement, your own understanding of what doctrinal purity is. Take the time to understand who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, what the church is, what's going to happen in the end times. Write out your doctrinal statement. Here's what I believe. Examine your own life. And this is for all of us. For greed, for selfishness. Be wary of any teacher who would use the Bible or the pulpit as a means for gain, personal wealth. And the last is probably the most important. Look for opportunities to speak to others concerning the truth about Jesus. There's so many people out there dispelling error. We need some people who know what the truth is and willing to go out there into this dark and dying world and share the precious gospel of Christ. We come to our communion time today. And and Bob, I want to thank you for reading that portion of Scripture because it... Definitely plays along with what we're talking about and also in with our communion. But I want to read for you as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning out of Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And then he says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm. And holding him up to contempt. It goes along with what we were just sharing. Once you come to Christ and once he has saved you. 
do you understand it's impossible for you to be saved again? It speaks not of, oh, falling away, I guess they lost their salvation. No, it speaks of the very fact that if they would have had their salvation, they never could have lost it. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you stop and you ponder the work of the cross and all that Christ did on the cross for us, the one thing that stands out to me is that, you know what, he paid our debt. He paid it in full. He has given to us His righteousness. He's imputed it to our account. And it secures our salvation. Not because of who we are, not because of what we do or what we've done or what we're going to do, but because of what He has done for us. See, and that's what the Christian faith is all about. If you're here today and you're trusting in things that you do or religious things that you believe or anything like that, I'm here to tell you that belief is not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to get you. It's empty. It's like an empty well, a waterless spring. But when you put your faith and trust in what Christ has done for you, and you bow and humble yourself before Almighty God, and you acknowledge your need of a Savior, trust me, He will do just that. He will save you. Transform your heart. Give you a new mind new perspective, new purpose, a new calling in life. Father, we pray this morning that if there's any here who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, that they would ponder the words that were spoken this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to their hearts that you would grant them repentance, as your word says you do, that you would cause them to understand your truth, take the blinders off their eyes, their need of a Savior, that they would be willing to acknowledge their need before you, a holy God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me, Lord. Help me in my unbelief. All those are prayers that God will hear I pray for us believers that we would acknowledge your work on our behalf, that we would stop trying to play religion and church, trying to make ourselves look good in front of everybody, that we would just be honest with ourselves, transparent. Lord, we're all sinners saved by your grace. We're all in this together. And Father, I just pray that as we come to this table this morning, Your word says that we should examine our hearts. That if there's anything that's wrong in our lives, attitudes or actions, that we can come to you and claim your forgiveness through Christ. Father, we shouldn't come to this table with known wrongdoing, known sin in our lives, that we can come to you and confess that sin. Because you've already forgiven it. And that's possible because of the work of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that we would walk away from this teaching today not discouraged about false teachers and how they're operating today, but encouraged that we serve a holy God, a God that has called us to his own, that protects us, that keeps us secure in our salvation. 
and that you've given us a message of hope, not an empty spring. And Lord, I pray that we would use that message to see others come to Christ. Father, we thank you and we, we ask your blessing upon our time now in Jesus' name. Amen.